Welcome to In Transition, a program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. Here's your host, David Pembroke. Well, hello once again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to In Transition, the podcast that examines the practice of content marketing in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and I'm delighted that you've decided to give us just a little bit of your time this week to discuss content marketing in government. As we do each week, we begin with the definition of content marketing as it relates to government and the public sector, because I think it's important that we do understand just exactly what content marketing is. So as we explore the concepts and the ideas, that we know exactly what we're talking about. So content marketing, and this is an adaptation of the Content Marketing Institute's definition, I might say, but as it relates to government and the public sector. So content marketing is a strategic, measurable and accountable business process that relies on the creation, curation and distribution of useful, relevant and consistent content in order to engage and inform a specific audience in order to achieve a specific and identified citizen and or stakeholder action. So to discuss content and all things content today, we're joined by Mitch Joel, who's one of the world's leading thinkers in all matters content. He is the president of Miram, a global marketing agency that operates in close to 20 countries with over 2,000 employees. He's also, importantly, the host of the popular podcast, Six Pixels of Separation, which recently reached the massive milestone of 500 episodes. Mitch is also the author of two books on the implications of new media. His latest book, Control-Alt-Delete, was named one of Amazon.com's best books of 2013. And it examines just how businesses and marketers can capitalise on the interconnections of modern society. Mitch has been named as one of the top 100 online marketers in the world. And instead of speaking at perhaps Google or Microsoft or anywhere else in the world that Mitch does, today he joins us from Montreal. Mitch Joel, thanks very much for being in transition. Thanks for having me, David. Now, perhaps I should have said, Mitch Joel, who are you and what do you do? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think you just said who I am and what I do. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but Mitch, actually, maybe let's start there on the podcast. Five hundred episodes, and it's it's where I first came across you, and you really enjoy it, don't you? Yeah. I mean, you know, we say the number five hundred now, and a lot of people do daily shows and and things like that. I've been doing a weekly show uh, for five hundred consecutive weeks. Haven't missed a week, so it's a uh, caving in it well past, I guess, a decade now at this point. Um, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. When I started the show because I was blogging every single day, and when I mean every single day, I mean seven days a week. And I thought, well, you know, even on Sundays, uh, the Lord above rested. I should probably rest too. Uh, maybe it'll just be easier to talk instead of type. And I started the podcast with that sort of spirit of more sort of rambling through um, what's been happening in the world and, and how things were changing. We're, again, we're going back to you know 10 years ago. Uh, and then quickly, as you know, because you produce a podcast, it's not that easy to do and it becomes, it's, it's a whole bunch of work. And as the technology evolved and the quality of the shows evolved too, yeah, you have to keep pace. 
Um, I enjoy it immensely. It's uh, I, I tell people it, it's probably the biggest guilty pleasure that I have. Every week I think of a problem I have in business or something I'm not sure of. And then I go, who would be the best person to ask? And then I coyly invite them onto my podcast. More often than not, people agree, which I'm very gracious for. And uh, I get to corner them and speak to them, you know, for upwards of 35 to, to minutes to an hour about all the things that they're great at. And the little secret is that I hit the publish button. But in reality, it's much like all of these great people just allowing me the the, the niceness of, of spending time with me. And I'm just, I feel very, very fortunate about it. And I, 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 I treat it with a with a serious amount of sanctity. Yeah, and as as a member of the audience, uh, I feel like I'm sitting there just listening in on a you know a great conversation, an interesting conversation. And I think this is perhaps one of the great powers of podcasting is that it is so intimate. It is. It is, and it isn't. I mean, you know, people hear that and thank you. I appreciate those compliments. But what they don't know is that from you know the years of 1988 onwards, I had spent years interviewing every famous rock star music celebrity and really sort of cut my teeth going into rooms where every 15 minutes another journalist was brought in to speak to this celebrity who was tired and exhausted from the gig before and they had to play that night. And I quickly realized that going in with questions and asking the same things everyone else was asking them was not doing me anything. And that became the moment, you know, again, when I was much, much younger, when I realized you have to have a conversation. You have to know your stuff. It's not about the next question. It's about where they're going and how they're leading it. So you're right that podcasting affords anybody the ability to have a show. Uh, it doesn't afford anybody the ability to know how to engage somebody in a conversation. And at the same time, having the communication skills to really bring the conversation out so that it's publishable. Those are things that I learned over a decade of working in a very, very tough milieu, uh, you know, rock stars and things like that, that, you know, I really do think I was able to transcribe into this business world. And I'm very fortunate for that. And I feel very grace, grateful for that. But I don't hear that a lot in the content. A lot of the content for me falls very flat because I feel like the person is just trying to get to the next question instead of really trying to have a great conversation. But perhaps isn't that the difference between a good podcast and a bad podcast? Yeah, it is. The problem is there's just way too many bad ones. <laughs> Have you got time to waste on bad ones or do you just quickly turn them off and, you know, just just spend your time on the ones that you enjoy? It's funny, as the years have gone on and on, There's, it's almost like I'm not as sort of serialized and dedicated to weekly listening to one specific person or show. I typically drop in and out based off of, do I like the content? Do I like the host? Do I like the guest? Um, so I, I don't really, I, it's funny, I, I have a show and I love podcasting, but I'm not a massive consumer as I used to be of the genre at all. Okay. And now listen, it's, it's, it's an interesting point that you made there before about going back through your history, because I think one of the things I particularly admire about you and your work is that you're not just an observer, not just a student, you're a participant. You've been in this content business for, as you say, going back to really even the days when you were a very young man and you were, you know, publishing, you know, those magazines from well, when you were almost a teenager. Where, where have we arrived at and how can people be successful in, in the world that we have today? I mean, a book could, could fill the answer to that question. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. not an easy thing to, to answer. Long ago, 
when blogging first became something and it, it sort of getting real awareness. And I'd say that's probably around you know, over 10 years ago. Uh, everybody wanted to have a blog. Everybody had a blog. And coming from a place where not only was I publishing magazines, but I was also writing freelance for a lot of magazines. I remember the gatekeeper. I remember me pitching stories in a pre-internet world by fax machine, by telephone, by regular snail mail, and getting rejected time and time and time again. And when blogging came to be, I realized that that was the end of those gatekeepers, as Seth Godin has so eloquently called them. And when I push that a little bit forward of where we're at, I think it's we're at the same place. Where are we at? We're at a place where anybody can have an idea, a thought, a story to tell, and they can publish that idea in text, images, audio, or video, or all at the same time, or one or two, or, or mixed up, or however they want, in short form or long form. And they can hit this amazing button that does publish it to the world. That doesn't mean you're going to have access to the world. It doesn't mean that the platform you're putting it on is going to have the attention of the world. But in theory, anybody who would like to find whatever it is this piece of content is can find it. Uh, what's happened is we've obviously had a massive evolution of the technology where we went from it in its more simplistic form of text to images, to audio and video. And that's just the complexity of how we deliver this content through the technology. And of course, now what we're seeing several, several decades later is the ability to do all that on a smartphone, which makes it extremely mobile, extremely live and in the moment. So you can think about things like Snapchat, uh, Instagram, WhatsApp. And it creates a very different dynamic of what what any brand, what any business, what any government can do to connect to their audience. Yeah, indeed. But how do they succeed? How do they do it well? You know, is it a matter of understanding the platforms, acquiring the skills, understanding the planning side of things? What are some of the things that people really need to get right if they're going to ensure that their story is heard? Well, they can't suck. I mean, you just can't suck. <laughs> you have to understand the audience. You have to understand how they're connecting and what they're getting value out of in whatever platform or type of media you choose to create. You have to come at it with a very authentic and real and value-added component to it. And I think more often than not, what I, where I think things fall down is that the people who are creating the content genuinely and unfortunately see it as a job versus the stuff that they're meant to communicate. People, what, Mitch, how do you still blog every single day? How do you still podcast every single week? I'm not even publishing all the things I would love to publish. And the truth is because I have a little bit of a nose for news and interest. And also I'm extremely passionate about using words and audio in my case. I'm not really a video or, or an image guy to communicate to a, a broader audience. And then on top of that, I've layered in uh, a theory of consistency. I come from the magazine world and I can tell you that I'd read these magazines that came out monthly and I'd be so passionate about them. And I'd go to the corner store where the magazines are being sold and I you know, walk away every other week. Ah, there's no new issue. There's no, new... but I can tell you the magazines that I really loved, whether it's a fast company or back in the day, business 2.0 wired, you could sense that it's been about a month and it's time for a new issue. If you know what I mean? And in digital, we sort of went in this sort of real-time perpetual content, content flow, which I think is, is, is interesting. But when you create great content and the audience wants it, they have a feeling. They, they understand the pulse of how you're pulsing that content out. And I think a lot, of the, a lot of the publishers who aren't really getting it just yet 
are so fragmented and it's so disjointed that there's never anything for the audience to latch on. You know, we wrote a post last Thursday, then there was an audio clip on Monday, then we posted something on Facebook. It's so disjointed that there's no way any of this audience can sort of clamp on and go for the ride. So I think it's all of those things. And the truth is, at the end of the day, it goes back to you, you, you can't. It's really hard to suck. I mean, it's, it's actually very easy to suck. Uh, in the sense of it's hard to suck in the sense of it's it's people won't connect to you they just won't there's no interest if there's nothing there for them so quality obviously as you say is is fundamental but i just like to explore this notion of consistency have have you noticed and again this is probably given that you have been a publisher for so long and you've you've published so much content over time how have you seen how consistency has helped Mitch Joel to, to build his considerable platform and to build the relationships you do with audiences now, which are located all around the world? Well, if you take my podcast, Six Pixels of Separation, I think there's over the years and by beating it down people's throats, they know that every Sunday there's a new show. And if I don't publish or something goes late or an FTP fails, I get emails and tweets and where's your show? I'm going for my walk. It's Sunday morning. It's almost like they're expecting it like they used to expect the Sunday Times. And I know that that there's something resonating. Every every Saturday I do a, a blog post where two of my friends, Hugh McGuire and Alistair Kroll, we share a link. Uh, basically, it's a link to the other person that we think they should see because we're all from very different types of industries with digital at our core. And it's been going on over 300 of those. And if you just follow the flow of my content, you'll see people saying things like, can't wait for Saturday, can't wait for the link exchange. And in a world that is so crowded, and I think a big problem is the quality where you know we always say the cream rises to the top. That's true. But now there's so much cream, it's hard to know what, what's at the top that by at least creating that editorial calendar in my own world, I hopefully and habitually am getting my audience in line with that. Some of it might be more unconscious and some of it is more premeditated. So unconscious is every Monday morning, I do a hit on the big local rock radio station here where I talk about digital media and it's about eight to 12 minutes long. And it's really an overview. What happened? What are the three things that happened? What's my app of the week? And it's posted to SoundCloud and I post that every single Monday on my blog. Now I haven't habituated anyone to that. I just post it every single Monday. What I noticed then is in the other social channels, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever it might be, when people are connecting to me, they'll be like, oh, great segment this morning. You know, so they're becoming yeah. more connected to it, but I'm not broadcasting. Monday is radio segment day. You know, that's, that's yeah. not how I do yeah. it. But Sunday is podcast day. Saturday is, is weekly link exchange. I have in my own head a rollout of the rest of the week. So for me, Monday is the radio component of it. Tuesday is usually a deeper thought piece from me. Wednesday is my uh, more elegant question thought, which is something I've read. And there's sort of a question being posed in, in this article. And I'll sort of come back with a more elegant question for business leaders to think about. Um, you know, Thursday, another thought piece. Friday, typically it's a video that's captured my attention and I'll do a bit of a commentary on it and then embed it into the thing. So again, it's not something that I publicly broadcast, but I know from my history of traditional media that creating that habituation, uh, that habitualization and getting people comfortable that there's something there regularly, it keeps the pace and flow more reasonable than it's, you know, we went for two weeks and didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. Now, but in terms of seeing the audience growth and, and the response to that, because that's a, a lovely cadence and you've outlined that really 
lovely and clearly. Have you seen the audience respond to it and grow over time? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm fortunate in that it seems like every year the appetite to to continue with me or for new people to figure out who I am is there. And I, I always jokingly say that in my industry, I'm a little mouse. You know, I've got 65,000 or whatever, 70,000 people maybe on Twitter. But I look to the giants. I can look at somebody like my friend Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's got millions upon millions of followers. And I go, listen, he's running a similar type of business to that I am. He's done it extremely successfully. I think we've done it too. So I know that if I grow my audience 10 times, that I'll still be just at par with him. And he's probably someone who can walk the streets without getting mobbed by adoring fans, that yeah. there's a bigger world out there. And so it's not necessarily a question for me of how many more people can I get to that sort of size of follower base. It's not that really important to me. What's important is that I have my own game and strategy around it. So when I look at other people, yeah. what's my game? My game is to be the marketer's marketer. My game is to be somewhat more academic my game is to be a little bit more philosophical, and I think my game is to also create a depth of content, meaning my pieces typically run a little long on the blog, and I know that, but I do that because I want people to commit to it. I want people to spend time with it. I don't want to have a BuzzFeedy, typical 250-word article. So I'm creating restrictions and and almost almost speed bumps, if you will, that run you know counter counter logic to what's happening online, but I'm doing it for a specific reason because I'm looking for a specific type of person, not a specific size of audience. Yeah, it, it's it's wonderful because it's you, what you're outlining is really the opportunity for people to be thoughtful about who it is that they're trying to uh, connect with because obviously you're not trying to get to everybody. You're trying to get to a particular type of person who's interested in marketing and build a relationship with them over time. Yeah, and I, I also I also want my work to be destination based a little bit. So I'm less interested in sort of engaging on Twitter and Snapchat. I understand them. I work with them. We recommend them to clients, and I get it. But I'd I'd prefer that the that the that this sort of conversation, if you will, because I don't use that word. It's a bit iffy. But the discourse against my content happens by people reading the blog post, listening to the podcast. And I don't care if they comment or like or share. I really don't. Uh, I want them to be better for that content. And when I'm writing it or creating a conversation, all I'm thinking in my head is, uh, how can I have the best conversation with this person if it's a podcast or if I'm writing a blog post? What is something about this thing that I haven't read or that is bothering me or that's itching at me that I need to get out and explore? And I'm hoping that when I do either of those two things, somebody else in the world goes, yeah, me too. Yeah. Now, listen, this, this podcast is really all about trying or, or starting the education process really for government and public sector uh, people working in communications all around the world, you know, to transition from the world, the, the traditional world of, you know, media buys. Uh, you know, public relations, uh, you know, traditional digital sort of plays to to taking on, you know, this gift of technology, which means that, you know, everyone now has the ability to be, you know, a creator and distributor of useful, relevant and consistent content. Uh, it's difficult sometimes for people to, you know, where do we get started? How do we sort of start to, you know, build those relationships with citizens and stakeholders through content? What what advice would you have for people who are just starting out on this journey of of becoming a publisher? 
Yeah, I mean, to me, it's actually very simple. What are you good at? What do, what do you care about? How are you good at communicating it? I've seen so many people, they start a blog and they're just not good at writing. They, they're much better at capturing images. So start an Instagram feed. I think that the, the real trick isn't what's cool, where are the masses? It's what type of content can you create passionately? What type of content would you create if there wasn't any money involved? Because typically there isn't. If there wasn't any audience involved, because there typically at the beginning isn't. But what is that skill set that you have that you that you believe needs to come out? And again, for me, it was very obvious that it was you know primarily writing, and then I I do enjoy for sure having the conversations for the podcast as well. But it was really the writing thing, and it, it was a no brainer for me. And even with things like Twitter or even you know Medium or LinkedIn, I see the format and I get it, and it's attractive to me for certain pieces of content maybe but it doesn't satiate what I need to do as a writer. And again, to date, maybe that'll change. It, it's happened still for me in, in, in the simplistic blog. And I recognize that that's uncool, that it's not Snapchat and that it's not you know creating unique filters for Snapchat and geo filters and all that sort of stuff. But I'm okay with not trying to just appease because that's the sort of shiny bright object of the day. I think the written word's been around a long time. I think it's going to be around for a long time to come. And all I'm doing is actually parsing and pruning the audience and getting the people who are most interested in the work that I'm creating. Um, it's, it's, a, it's not a very smart strategic thing that I would say to a client because they're trying to get you know mass and they're trying to reach almost everybody. And I think you need different levers to pull at that point. But you're not going to get anywhere on the content side of creation if whoever's creating the content treats it as a job and what do I have to do today versus, you know, if you, if you saw a shot of my desk here, you'd see a whole bunch of papers, just bullet point after bullet point of potential blog stories, podcast interviews, um, ideas, things like that. I just don't have enough time to get it all out in words. Mm. What about the context, you know, the, the broader context? I was interested a couple of weeks ago when you, you started talking about, you know, the need to publish, you know, where audiences are and you were mulling over this idea of, you know, am I going to take everything and, and put it into Facebook yeah. and start putting all of my material there? Where, where are you with that thinking at the moment in terms of how people engage with these, you know, these, these massive platforms that are now in place? I realized doing this every day for as many years as decades at this point that I've done that as the years progressed, it was getting increasingly more difficult to get somebody to come to the blog. At first, you know, they would come because there weren't that many. Then they would come because they signed up to an e-newsletter. Then there was RSS, and then they'd have it in a feed and a reader, and then it would get shared, and then and then and then and the social media came on. And when social media came on, it really, I mean, it was say social media, I mean, social networks. So let's talk about LinkedIn. Let's talk about Facebook. Let's look at what Medium does. Those platforms make it even harder to say to somebody on them, hey, you're here in Facebook. We're having a jolly old time. Come over to my blog and check out this thing that I just wrote. When in reality, yeah. you can just embed it there into that content. And so that increasing cost, which isn't necessarily monetary, it could be just time, energy, and effort, switched the paradigm. This only happened very recently, I'd say within the past two years, where it's been a dramatic shift. So whereas before I used to think, well, what will be the legacy of six pixels of separation as the destination for how I think, what's happening at Miram, et cetera, et cetera, 
I realized that it's almost like more like the freelance world that I came from, which is I didn't own the magazines that I was published in. I just published on them. And I published on them because there was an audience present. And so I would urge people if they were thinking about starting today and getting started in this is actually to not worry so much about what you're putting on your own site behind your own walled garden, if you will, but rather where is your most active audience and can you reach them directly in there? So for me, I have been testing putting some of this content that I would normally just blog onto Facebook. Um, I'm thinking about things like LinkedIn and Medium and you know getting more irregular again with the Huffington Post, which I contributed to for many years and probably will start that up again really soon. The thought that I have is six pixels of separation used to be the destination. Everything I did out in the social media networks was about getting you to come back to check out the blog, download the podcast. Now I'm thinking about how I can maybe invert that. It's in Facebook, it's on LinkedIn, it's in HuffPo, it's in Medium, and that the blog that used to be the destination now becomes more of the archive. Everything that I create is still there, and you can visit it there, and it's as fresh as any other moment. But the real action on that content is happening in the spaces outside of the blog. Yeah, right. Okay. And and your where do you think that's going to end up? Do you think it is this notion of, of distributed content that is going to be sort of fundamental over the next you know few months and years? Increasingly, it's going to be that's where you've got to have to be. Well, I think there's a, I think there is an equalized, I think there's an equalized thought around not just, you know, it used to be like, what type of content are you creating? And that was the big thing. And now I think there's an equalized thought around not only what type of content are you creating, but where are you distributing it? And that it's not sufficient to just put it on your own property because then you have to spend a significant amount of time, energy, and effort getting people there. And more often than not, you have to pay for that as well. Now, I'm not saying you have an easy float on Facebook. You, know, you go on Facebook with all the likes that you may have for your brand and all that, It's still you still have to potentially pay to have all that stuff come through uh, to your audience, but better than nothing. Yeah. But what was your response then? I, I, again, one of your other conversations the other uh, the other week with your, your friend Avinash Kaushik, where he was saying, you know, that he's sort of heading perhaps in the other direction back to his own site, putting more focus on you know, building email distribution because he's found that perhaps the engagement, I think he mentioned around Google Plus had, had dropped off and he was looking for another sort of experience. So how do you reflect on the fact that someone as popular and um, and prolific as, as Avinash is now focusing on his home base? So I, I, w- I would correct the statement and I'd say that what Avinash is doing is he's very, very active in the social spaces where he's seen the value And what he's trying to do, which is something that I embarrassingly never did, was build the database so that I can actually speak direct to my audience. He recognized that he too was late in that. He anticipated, as I did, that you're on blogs and social media, that's enough. But there is a value in actually being able to speak directly to people through that inbox. And so this new little newsletter that he has is directed to build the database up, get the names there, and send the content out. He's not dismissing posting on his blog, posting on Facebook and all the other places where he's doing amazing, amazing stuff. Probably one of the smartest guys I know. I think he's just playing a little bit of catch up as I should be. Embarrassingly enough, I haven't, I probably will soon, to building that database because it is it's somewhat, it is somewhat wasteful to not be able to have that direct relationship with your audience if all you do is have the blog and they're not necessarily coming there as often as, or as frequently as they used to. 
So I think there's yeah. a tremendous power in just building that database and having it. And the only way that that database, from my perspective, and I think Avinash is, again, one of the few that's getting it so right, is it's pure value. He is not yeah. telling you about his e-marketing course or trying to sell you a book. Uh, every little e-newsletter <laughs> that, that Avinash sends you is a beautiful little gem. And I think it's brilliant. And I think, again, I, I definitely see myself moving in that direction. And I could see all of the authors and thinkers that I love doing that. And I would love nothing more than to open up my email every day and have all the smartest people I know sending me little personalized pieces of content of things that are on their mind because – it's sometimes hard to get that message through on the Facebook feed. It's sometimes hard to get it through in a cluttered place like LinkedIn. And it's very hard if I, as the reader, I'm not actively going to their site every day, which is something none of us do anymore. Mm. Listen, only a couple more minutes before we close off, but I just quickly want to get your views on you know, not only are you this you know prolific um, creator, distributor, thinker, around you know content uh, digital marketing etc but you also are involved in in the agency world and you're working with clients globally you know as part of the WPP group in that role what's the sort of advice that you're giving to people when you're sort of walking into those meetings and they're saying Mitch you know talk to us what what does the what does Mitch Joel say to to those big clients who are who are looking for the insights? What's the, what are the key things that you're saying to them as we look forward? Well, from a content perspective, um, it's not to forget about content. I think a lot of them really feel, uh, mostly because these channels have been in their offices without us and said to them, they've got mass reach, um, that it's a, a lot of the social media conversation is it's just a paid channel now. And I think that is true. And that's the game that the, that the social media networks have to play but it's not the only thing. So I think there still is value in creating valuable, tangible, utility-based content, one. Uh, two is I think that they have to fundamentally understand how this content is being consumed. And we can talk all we want about web browsers and blogs, but all of this stuff is really happening on these mobile devices. Now that's a Pandora's box, because the minute you go there, you start looking at things like their websites and everything they've done to date. And for the vast majority of brands out there, from the biggest to the smallest, from B2B to B2C, from, it doesn't matter, uh, those experiences are pretty not great. At best, they're responsive, and unfortunately, your consumer is living in a Tinder, Uber-based environment where they have interactions sliding the thumbs up, down, Snapchats, and they come to sort of lesser than web versions, smaller than mobile experience that isn't really intuitive and organic like the other apps that they use. And it's a very bad brand impression. Um, and then, you know, the other stuff that I'm looking at primarily is where is the innovation coming from? And when I say innovation, I don't mean a better mousetrap, a better ad. But as an engine of marketing now, because of these publishing platforms, you can create digital products, digital services, bridges between what you physically may sell or bridges between what services you may offer from online ordering. And then the other side is the transactional side. And I'm not talking about them ultimately buying your product. I think that's really important. I'm talking about what happens to get them to that point and how are you engaging in those transactions. If somebody signs up for any newsletter, does that give them a higher propensity to convert to being a customer? If they watch a video and then sign up to an e-newsletter, what does that do? And understand the dynamics that are happening behind it, not just the sort of, you know, again, what Avinash Kosh will call the vanity metrics, but the real metrics of conversions through micro, uh, and it's, it keeps stealing Avinash's stuff, but these micro transactions or micro conversions. Mm. 
Well, Mitch, thank you very much for your time today and for sharing some of your wisdom on just exactly how it is that you've got yourself to where you are. And you still, still sound um, excited, enthusiastic in this sort of infinitely fascinating world of digital marketing that's that's changing you know, every day. And uh, are you as fired up as you've ever been about being involved in, in the business? It's a yes and no. I'm, I'm as fired up because I, I feel like whenever you're talking about the evolution of brands and technology, the runway is very long and very wide. So in that instance, when I look out at the horizon and see things like augmented reality and virtual reality and robotics and drones and marketing automation, I'm extremely yeah. passionate about it. On the other side, I'm a bit I'm a bit non-excited about it because I feel like we've sort of given up on the social, that sort of human beings having real interactions between real human beings through digital channels because we feel like it's all just paid now and it's all been turned into the sort of cash machine. And I don't think that that's true, but because brands are, are, are reacting that way and traditional agencies are sort of selling that bill of goods as well, I'm, I'm disillusioned on that side. Okay. All right, then. Well, listen, thank you very much again for your time. Um, thanks for being so generous with that time and certainly for the audience because I know they would have got an enormous amount out of it. So just quickly, how do people connect into you know, the world of Mitch Joel and where can they get to know you a little bit better and, and understand you know, some of the thinking that you're continuing to do on a, a daily and weekly basis? Google Mitch Joel. It's all there. Okay. Mitch Joel, thanks very much for joining us in Transition. Pleasure. Thanks, David. You've been listening to In Transition, the program dedicated to the practice of content marketing in the public sector. For more, visit us at contentgroup.com.au.